Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Jcow's View, a presentation of Alliance-Wrestling.com, your number one source for news and information for the National Wrestling Alliance. My name is Jcow, and this is the journey of a journalist. This is where I pontificate about professional wrestling. This is where I, I talk about wrestling, guys, and I give you my point of view. I never sugarcoat it. I never uh, hem-haw about things. You're going to hear my POV every time you listen to this podcast. And on this episode, this is more of a look historically about the NWA in the land of the rising sun. The Far East, if you will. And I'm talking about Japan, baby. Now, oddly enough, oddly enough, the NWA's relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling is pretty well documented. But there's there's a lot of history that tends to get forgotten about, especially in those, you know, quote unquote wilderness years of the NWA. And that's where I kind of spent my time today talking about the NWA, talking about its relationship with promotions in Japan. I mean, it was just a mere, you know, I get, well, I guess it's four years ago now. Uh, it, it wasn't that long ago that our world's heavyweight champion, you know, not, not Nick Aldis, but Tim Storm traveled to uh, Japan to defend the 10 pounds of gold. It wasn't that long ago that Rob Conway teaming with Matt Riviera as the Iron Empire took the World Tag Team Champions uh, titles to Japan. So uh, after the break, we're going to talk about this this long-standing relationship between the NWA and uh, the Japanese professional wrestling, and I hope you will stick around for it. Catch you after the break. The thing that a lot of people seem to forget is how important the NWA title has been to the land of the rising sun over the years. I mean, the National Wrestling Alliance had a very interesting relationship going back to Ricky Dozen uh, and the Japanese Wrestling Alliance. I mean, he was bringing in talents from the West and featuring the NWA World Champions. I mean, not just the World Heavyweight Champion, but also the Junior World Heavyweight Champion. I mean, it seemingly... Japan has this affinity for the NWA. It's kind of like how uh, in the United States, how those southern states love the NWA. And I mean, I'm a I'm a not a southerner. I'm 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 a Yankee from the north. I live in California, but um, you can tell the passion that southern fans have about the National Wrestling Alliance. It, it still continues to this day. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why. Um, Billy Corgan chose to do the television tapings in Georgia and do the pay-per-view in North Carolina. It's because of that connection to those southern states where Jim Crockett promotions was such a big deal. And I feel like in in some regards, in Japan, the NWA has a similar footing, a similar um, uh, a staple of, of that, that love, that connection. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, they were bringing in Danny Hodge as World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Um, I, I mean, he and Hiro Matsuda uh, battled over that Junior Heavyweight Championship in, in Japanese Wrestling Alliance, and then later even in uh, the uh, IWE, um, International Wrestling Enterprise. Um, and that was like in the 70s. And I mean, it was still happening up until 20, 2017 when Tim Storm defended the 10 pounds of gold against Ryuta Hamada in, uh, I think that was Dream Stage Wrestling. 
And that was after they had already split from working with New Japan Pro Wrestling. And you might think this has to do, again, with New Japan Pro Wrestling and that Jim Crockett Promotions Connections. But it's actually bigger than that. I mean, in 1993, when uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling quietly exited the NWA along with World Championship Wrestling, um, the World Heavyweight Championship and also Junior Title would still become regularly featured through multiple promotions in Japan. I mean, you could go back to August 20th, 1995. Um, the NWA member of record, Victor Kionis, would bring Dan Severin in to face Tarzan Goto at the IWA uh, Japanese, or IWA Japan, uh, forgive me if I say the name wrong, the Kawasaki Dream Match. And this was a deathmatch tournament. I mean, it's literally deathmatch wrestling. And in the main event, you get uh, a legitimate shoot fighter, a UFC champion, and the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion taking on uh, Goto, who was more known for deathmatches at that time. Goto didn't exactly play that by the rules. Um, later, he would bring Severn back, like almost two years later, and he would fight against uh, uh, the great Kabuki who was kind of the inspiration for the great Muda. And uh, and so they added that match then, too. By 1999, Antonio Inoki had uh, returned to, so, to gain some influence in the National Wrestling Alliance, and he would bring Dan the Beast Severin to his promotion in Japan, not New Japan Pro Wrestling, but the Universal Fighting Arts Organization, also known as UFO. And he would book the match that would feature Noya Ogawa, Versus Dan Severn. Ogawa would, win, would end up winning that title. Um, that would be the, the end of Severn's first reign as champion. Ogawa would defend it, uh, of course, in UFO. But then he also he would also defend it in the United States as well. Uh, but then he would uh, end up defending that title also again in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, at this point, there was no direct correlation between New Japan Pro Wrestling and the NWA. We're talking about 1999. There was no direct connection. And uh, so he would wrestle against uh, Shinya Hashimoto. Uh, unsuccessfully, Hashimoto would challenge, and uh, he would end up losing that match by referee's decision. Oddly enough, the referee in that match was Tatsuji Fujinami, who was the man to beat Ric Flair for the world title back in, uh, I think it was 90, I want to say 92, 93. <sighs> Hashimoto became kind of synonymous with the NWA. It, it almost felt like Hashimoto's desire to be NWA world champion uh, kind of lied with the fact that his brothers in the Three Musketeers, uh, Masahiro Chono and uh, the Great Muda, both had held NWA world heavyweight championships, and it seemed like Hashimoto uh, wanted to follow his brothers in holding, have, having held the IWGP title as well as holding the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And so, uh, although he was unsuccessful in that effort uh, back in '99, he would eventually win that title by beating Steve Carino, and I believe it was. Uh, I want to say Gary still out in, in in Connecticut, maybe Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm not. I'm sorry. I was writing more about the Japanese side of the story, but I don't exactly remember what city they were in when they wrestled. But uh, essentially, Hashimoto would take that title back to Japan for his promotion, Zero One, and Zero One Wrestling at the time was a. Uh, it was. Zero One had uh, Antonio Inoki's. Um, proxy his membership his ability his territory his blessing to be promoting 
NWA events. Hashimoto would win that title. It's funny. He came out to Southern California uh, and he didn't really have a defense, but he showed up at UPW, Ultimate Pro Wrestling. Now, UPW had a working relationship with the NWA or rather they had a working relationship with zero one and zero one had this relationship with the nwa and so there was a this kind of a triangle of promotion where the nwa uh titles would be defended in japan and a lot of the upw talent would end up challenging for those titles that's another podcast but specifically on this uh for this show hashimoto showed up and hashimoto was in full hill hashimoto was literally like just uh, just verbally assaulting the uh, UPW crowd and that featured guys like Tom Howard but more importantly Samoa Joe and I felt like had Hashimoto held onto that title a little bit longer we might have seen Hashimoto versus Samoa Joe in the United States however that title ended up uh, uh, the title ended up back in Japan with uh, Hashimoto defending against um some of you guys might remember him from WWE, but this was before he came to WWE, and that was Nathan Jones. So Hashimoto, victorious, defends the title against Nathan Jones, only to lose to Dan Severin a couple of weeks later. And then in turn, um, that's when uh, the Jarrett's got involved with the NWA and started TNA Total Nonstop Action Wrestling. Severin was stripped of the title, and the belt would become uh, more or less the licensed property of impact wrestling so that was a pretty cool time as far as i'm concerned to see that the nwa um would have that title in japan for so long but there's one more defense of that title and i don't normally speak positively of this guy i don't really love this guy in fact if you guys watch this podcast for very long you know i absolutely despise joseph kabibo also known as the sheik I don't know what he's called in MLW, but he's part of the Contra unit. I don't care for the guy. But one cool thing he was able to do as world champion in the brief time that he was champion was on July 3rd, 2011, he was able to go to Japan and defend the 10 pounds of gold against, um, oh, I don't have his name written down. Ah, he defended it in 0-1. So it kind of bridged that gap from when Hashimoto was champion. Then the Sheik came there and had his title. And then, of course, we all know the story about the Sheik getting stripped of the title. And uh, subsequently, the junior heavyweight champion, um, Craig Classic, would uh, forfeit his title but surrender the belt to 0-1. Another set of odd circumstances for another podcast. So there you have it, man. I mean, the connection to the NWA in Japan, I think, is pretty pretty fierce i think it was pretty cool and uh again as a longtime fan of the nwa if uh if you didn't know that there was a connection between the nwa and uh japanese wrestling there it is of course you know we kind of went into it a few minutes ago but um rob conway would bring the title back to the nwa so you know there was about a handful of uh nwa champions who had defended the 10 pounds of gold in japan and then of you know, of course, predating that, the big gold belt with uh, Chono and and um, Muda, and then Tatsuji Fujinami, and of course, way back when uh, uh, the uh, the great. Uh, why am I having trouble here? Giant Baba, excuse me.
So the World's Heavyweight Championship certainly had ties to uh, the Far East for, you know, whether it be Baba or uh, Tatsuji Fujinami. Uh, you know, we talked uh, briefly about the Three Musketeers with Hashimoto and Muda and Chono and the later Ogawa. But the World Junior Heavyweight Championship, that belt itself also has these ties to Japanese pro wrestling. And, you know, we won't talk about the early 80s with Tiger Mask holding the NWA Junior Heavyweight Championship. But when you fast forward to like 1988, Nelson Royal was the last man to be recognized as the World Junior Heavyweight Championship for the National Wrestling Alliance. And that was a full two years before Ted Turner would end up buying Jim Crockett Promotions and turning that into WCW. So the the Junior Heavyweight Championship wasn't even defended for about five years. Because after 91, when uh, Crockett is sold to Turner, you know, there is no Junior Heavyweight title matches on the cards. There is no Junior Heavyweight title. WCW briefly will recognize a light heavyweight champion, but that is not the same as the NWA Junior Heavyweight Champion. And in fact, it isn't until August 30th, 1995, when the NWA would crown a new Junior Heavyweight Champion with the help of Wrestle Yume Factory. They sometimes were called Wrestle Dream Factory. Now, they held a tournament to crown a new World Junior Heavyweight Champion at the Korean Hall in Tokyo, Japan. In the first round, um, well, in all the first round matches, we, there was a, several of them, Masayoshi Motigi would defeat Ray Gonzalez. There would be a couple of WWE stars, you know, ECW stars as well. Um, Takahashi Okano, sorry if I'm not pronouncing these correctly, would defeat Super Crazy. You guys remember Super Crazy? He had uh, a longstanding, um, spent some time with the WWE and in ECW. Lucha Libre legend, and I mean legend, El Hijo de Santo, uh, defeated Yoshihiro Tajiri. Now that's, yes, that is the same Tajiri from the WWE. And Kamikaze would end up defeating Unicorn. I don't know who these guys are. I'm sorry I wasn't there. And I don't really have any background on them. In the semifinals, Masayoshi Motigi would defeat uh, Takahashi Okano. Santo would defeat Kamikaze, setting up in the main event in the finals of the tournament. Masayoshi Motigi would defeat El Hijo de Santo to become the new NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Now that in and of itself is pretty spectacular because now you have a junior heavyweight championship and that junior heavyweight championship um you know the they they hadn't had that in a while now yes it was in japan and and although there were some uh, up-and-coming junior heavyweights for the new nwa uh this was this title was pretty much exclusive to japan and you'll see why that is because after a while that title becomes even bigger than what it was before. Um, going back on June 11th, almost a year later, uh, Masayoshi Motigi defeats Hector Garza at the Korean Hall in Tokyo for that Russell Yume factory, his first title defense. He also will end up facing um, Shiri at Budokan Hall in Tokyo, and, and that's for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Does that kick off any bells for you? Now, I, I didn't really want to talk about the uh, 
the connection between uh, New Japan and the junior heavyweight title because there's lots of instances of that. But as it can, continues to go on August 2nd, 1996, as part of the J-Crown tournament, the IWGP junior heavyweight champion, the great Sasuke, would defeat Masa Yoshimotigi to win the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. And that was on the first night of the New Japan G1 Climax TV show in Raikuku. I'm not sure if I'm even saying that right. I'm not going to even try it, but that was in Tokyo, Japan. And then August 4th, 1996, during the semifinals, the great Sasuke would defeat El Samurai to capture his WWA World Light Heavyweight Championship and the WWF Lightweight titles. And that, so that basically means that the great Sasuke was holding four different titles the IWGP Junior title, the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship, the WWA World Light Heavyweight, and the WWF Light Heavyweight titles. On August 5th, during the finals of the J Crown Tournament, the great Sasuke, who again held those four titles, would defeat the Ultimo Dragon, who held the War International Junior Heavyweight Championship, the MPW British Commonwealth Junior Heavyweight title, the UWA World Junior Light Heavyweight title, and the NWA World Welterweight title. So, at the end of those finals, that was eight titles, eight separate wrestling promotions, junior championships to become the J-Crown. And on October 11th, 1996, the Ultimo Dragon defeated the Great Sasuke to win the J-Crown. And that happened at War's Osaka Crush uh, event at the Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium in Osaka, Japan, of all places. On December 1st, Ultimo Dragon would defend that title against Grand Nanawa at the Inoki Festival in Yokiyogi uh, National, National Gymnasium No. 2 in Tokyo, Japan. So now you've got a couple defenses of that J-Crown on December 13th as a almost like a rematch from their uh, initial J-Crown match. Ultimo Dragon defeated Masa Yoshimotigi at the Wrestle Yume event in Kumaga, Saitsuma, Japan. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. And then, and then on, on December 29th, 1996, Ultimo Dragon defeats Dean Malenko for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship at Starcade at the Municipal Auditorium in Tennessee. So now the eight-tuplet title becomes the nine-tuplet title. I know I'm not saying that right. Nine championships, basically the J-Crown and the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. On December 30th, Ultimo Dragon defeats Jushin Thunder Liger on Monday Nitro in Knoxville, Tennessee. So now the WCW, uh, the promotion that walked away walked away from the NWA in 1993. Now, three years later, is showcasing that title along with eight or seven other junior heavyweight championships as part of that J-Crown. Now, shortly after this, the WWE uh, wanted to create their own uh, light heavyweight division once again, and the titles would be split, and the recognition for that junior heavyweight championship would revert back to the National Wrestling Alliance. But there's a, a perfectly good uh, moment in time where the NWA title was held as the same with, with the same uh, integrity and vigor and um, honor that the IWGP title held, that the uh, WWF light heavyweight title held, that the 
UWA light heavyweight title held. I mean, promotions not just representing Japan, but Mexico, the United States, the UK, all these championships as one crown. Something that we will probably never see again. But for a brief time, we had a single competitor with nine active junior heavyweight championships in the likes of uh, Ultimo Dragon. And again, you know, there was an NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship and that J-Crown. So I think that's pretty cool. And again, shows you the uh, the value that the Japanese placed on the NWA brand. Now, the tag team titles. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the tag team titles. Now, remember back in 1993, the NWA and WCW had a unified World Tag Team Championship, meaning that uh, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin held the unified tag team titles. There were the NWA and WCW Unified World Tag Team Champions. And now those titles changed hands for the last time under the WCW banner in 1993 on August 18th. And that was at the Clash of the Champions number 24 where the Horsemen, Arn Anderson, and Paul Roma would become the new tag team champions. Now, again, WCW splits from the NWA. And now there are no tag team champions. There are no champions at all. I mean, they basically, anything dealing with WCW has been washed away. So the NWA needs to crown new champions. And they do so in NWA Dallas, where the Rock and Roll Express win a tournament to become tag team champions. Uh, And they have those titles for basically about a month. They had the titles for basically about a month in 1995 from April the 11th through April 25th. By by May 5th, 1995, NWA Dallas ceases operations. Jim Crockett Jr. is officially done with the NWA. Their last defense would be against Dick Murdoch and Randy Rhodes at the Sportatorium in Dallas, Texas. And again, that was on April 25th, 1995. Um... The NWA uh, would hold the NWA Dallas would hold their last event in Wichita Falls uh, in Texas on May the 5th. So with the backing of the NWA member Victor Kionis, IWA Japan would be the next area, the next territory who had set forth to crown a new set of NWA tag team champions. And over an 11 day period from November 27th to December 9th, the NWA would tag the NWA World Tag League. Let me try that for a third time. The NWA World Tag League would be part of the IWA Japan Second Year Final Battle Tour. Now, what's ridiculous about this is IWA Japan was essentially a blood, like blood and guts promotion. I mean, this place was filled with death matches. Uh, you guys have seen some of it uh, if you've searched YouTube. You know, Mick Foley speaks at length about his time in IWA Japan with their death matches. Um, this kind of uh, IWA Japan was kind of like the rival promotion to FMW, that's Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. And again, that's where a lot of the deathmatch wrestling first started off. And uh, I mean, when you look at this roster that participated in the tag tournament, I mean, it's, it's fairly obscure as well. I mean, you've got 
Bam Bam Terry Gordy, a former NWA tag team champion in his own right, teaming with Kizo Matsuda. He's most known as the fake hard gay for Hustle. Um, then you had Flying Kitty Chara teaming with Miguel Perez Jr. Miguel Perez Jr. is a, a talent that wrestled for the IWA Puerto Rico as well as WWE. He was part of uh, Savio Vega's uh, That The Headhunters, who if you followed ECW, you saw them. They wrestled in ECW. I think they had a handful of matches in the WWE. You had Leatherface and Shoji Nakamaki. Now, Leatherface... Uh, Another hallmark of IWA Japan was to take these, you know, uh, villains from horror movies and turn them into wrestlers. And you'll see like Leatherface there on this card. There's also Freddy Krueger, someone else named the Boogeyman, not no relation to the WWE's Boogeyman. Uh, the next tag team would be Cactus Jack and Tiger Jeet Singh. Uh, for a brief time, Tiger Jeet Singh's son actually competed in the WWE. Then you had Mr. Gunna, uh, Mr. Ganosuke and Tarzan Goto. Now, we've mentioned Tarzan Goto as the man who uh, challenged uh, uh, Dan Severn for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Then you've got the Boogeyman and Freddy Krueger. And rounding up the, the tournament was Kisuke Yamada teaming with former NWA World Heavyweight Champion Terry Funk. So, like I said, that tag team division is... Is wild man. I mean, you've got Terry Gordy teaming with a uh, you know deathmatch wrestlers. You've got uh, Terry Funk and Cactus Jack. Now, of course, those guys kind of revitalized their careers in Japan with IWA and uh, were known for a lot of that deathmatch wrestling. Um, and those guys being uh, Cactus Jack and uh, Terry Funk. And the round robin tournament ended with Cactus Jack and Tiger Jeet Singh losing to the team of Mr. Ganosuke and Tarzan Goto. And at the time, Cactus Jack was regularly working for ECW. I mean, he uh, he he speaks at length about his time in IWA Japan and working with Terry Funk in, in the uh, New York Times bestseller, Have a, Have a Nice Day. And those titles would essentially be like uh, uh, defended in IWA Japan uh, you know, amidst all this crazy like deathmatch wrestling, the NWA World Tag Titles were there. Now, around 1996, the NWA or Victor Kionis and the IWA would kind of end their relationship. The promotion that he founded uh, would shut its doors. Well, I mean, it wouldn't shut its doors. Let me rephrase that. He would walk away from the promotion. He had opportunities again in Puerto Rico and with working with the WWE to bring talent uh, to the WWE. And, and he had on-air roles with IWA Puerto Rico. So he left Japan uh, for greener pastures. And basically the titles would be uh, abandoned around 1996. And it, would, it wouldn't be for a few more months when C.W. Anderson, uh, Anderson and Pat Anderson would win those tag team titles in a tournament. But uh, there it is again, you know, the NWA, this long-standing, rich in tradition, historical legacy, uh, you know, the is still sought after in Japan. And, uh, you know, the, that's the example of the tag titles. Of course, we mentioned the world title and the junior heavyweight championship. We know that the women's championship would be defended in, in stardom. It would also later be defended uh, with zero one and its connection to the uh, 
you know, the fake AWA. And so it was just a wild experience uh, for the NWA to have its championships, even when it was at its lowest regard, still sought after in Japan. And, uh, you know, again, it's a trend that, you know, continued until, I mean, as recent as 2017 when Tim Storm defended that title at uh, the uh, Diamond Star Wrestling. So we don't know what's going to be next for Billy Corgan's NWA. We don't know what's going to happen next with Nick Aldis and Serena Deep and Trevor Murdoch and... Kratos and Stevens uh, we just don't know but you know as a as a longtime fan of the NWA I would always say you know never <laughs> never assume that it's impossible because uh, we've seen it happen time in and time again so maybe we will see you know Serena Deep defend the NWA Women's World Championship in stardom we may see Nick Aldis make that trek to Japan or maybe you know to defend either New Japan or Noah I mean we just don't even know or maybe J.R. Kratos and Aaron Stevens will be a part of the New Japan Tag Team League I mean anything really could happen and uh you know the whole point of this is just to show that there is an affinity for that NWA brand in the land of the rising sun hey if you like this podcast would you mind giving us a thumbs up and if you really like it would you mind sharing it with your friends We really do appreciate your patronage. We really do appreciate you listening to the podcast. And we do a live YouTube stream every Tuesday at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, youtube.com forward slash the Alliance blog. We'd hope you check that out. And until next time, we'll see you at the matches.